I told you to go to Romans 13, verse 8, but I, I want you to have your thumb there and then flip with your other thumb to Luke 10, verse 25. It's a famous story. It's and if you don't have thumbs, I put it on the screen for you so you can follow along as well. A very famous passage about uh, a Samaritan who in those days was considered to be quite wicked by the Jews. They were half-breeds, and they, you know, you'd avoid the Samaritan country by going around it as much as you possibly could. If there's a road that went north, you would go the long way around Samaria so you wouldn't have to go through that land because you just didn't like Samaritans if you were a Jew. But this story is actually a story about a good Samaritan. You know it. I'm sure you do. Listen, if, even if you're not involved in church at all, you probably heard this one. You know of good Samaritan laws. This is where it comes from. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law, okay, read, read lawyer here, stood up to, the, to test Jesus. By the way, what do you call a thousand lawyers on the bottom of the sea? A good start, right? <laughs> Just kidding. This is about a lawyer. I got more lawyer jokes later. Teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, this guy's testing Jesus. You saw that, right? He's coming along to test Jesus. He's not asking the question because he's really interested in the answer. He's trying to test Jesus' orthodoxy. Are you gonna answer this question the right way? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Hmm, Jesus, what's the proper answer to that question? Give me your theological belief. Jesus responds, verse 26, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? It's a great way to answer a probing question. Just ask a question back. I don't know. What do you think? He answered, well, love the Lord. He's a preening kind of guy, so he just wants to present. Yeah, I know the answer to the question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, have a vertical relationship with God that involves every ounce of your being. Give him everything you've got and treat the people around you in the same way you'd want to be treated yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. It's interesting, of course, that the tables have turned. Jesus now is the one who's testing him as opposed to him testing Jesus. Lawyers are caught in this trap Frequently, apparently. But he wanted to justify himself, which is also a trap that lawyers get caught into, right? Listen, if you're a lawyer in the room, you know it's true. (laughs) He wanted to justify himself, so he asked, a good lawyer question, but who's my neighbor? Listen, let's define our terms, Jesus. Like, if we're gonna, if we're gonna, Think about this as what God expects of us. Surely God doesn't want us to love everybody. That would be impossible, especially he wouldn't want us to love, I don't know, the, the Samaritans. I mean, they're not worth it. We avoid them, right? They worship a different kind. They, we worship God, but in a very different kind of way. They're dirty and gross, and if I see one, I spit, want to spit on them. So let's define neighbor. Who's my neighbor? 
And in reply, Jesus said, oh, I've got a story for you. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. That road from Jerusalem to Jericho is really windy, and it's got craggy rocks along the side in these days, and it was a frequent place for robbers to attack people. Usually, in order to go up to Jerusalem, they would have lots of stuff with them, and coming down, they would often have stuff with them, and so you'd, you'd, you'd beat them. Oftentimes, when you beat them, you'd leave them on the side of the road and you'd hide in the, in the little caves in the rocks and wait for somebody to come along and try to help and then you'd beat them. And you might leave two people on the side of the road and then you'd beat the next guy. The rule going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is avoid people on the side of the road, okay? You might get hurt by getting involved. They stripped him, verse 30, of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So a priest, right, the lead pastor, happens to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, what do you expect here? He went over to him and gave him great care, preached a wonderful sermon to him. But what do you get? Oh, he passed by on the other side. Stupid pastors. So too, verse 32, a Levite, associate pastor. Now this guy's surely gonna help. Associate pastors are, are always trying to jump the queue, you know, get their name in lights. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. These are the most religiously consistent, morally upright people in the community, and neither of them help the guy on the side of the road. We don't know why. Maybe it's because they're afraid of somebody jumping out. Maybe they've just got a place to go. I don't know. But, verse 33, a Samaritan. You've got to feel the throats of all the people listening to Jesus, especially the lawyer tight. A Samaritan. What do you expect here? Well, you expect a Samaritan went over to him, spit on him, kicked him, and finished him off. That's what Samaritans are like, you know. A Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And that pity took a form. It wasn't just a feeling or a word to the guy. It took an active form. Verse 34, he went to him, bandaged his wound, Wounds pouring on oil and wine, probably for disinfectant. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took, and took care of him. Inns were notorious places for those robbers that beat you up on the road to go and stay. You, you don't leave people in an inn. They were not safe places. It's, seriously, it's not like the Marriott. They were frequented by all sorts of Bad guys, and so if you went to an inn, you had to have people look after you or you'd have to look after someone, so there they are. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him, and the next day, he took out two denarii. That's two days' wages, so figure out whatever it is that you make in a day, double it. And he gave it to the innkeeper. He said, look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So I'm paying you to look after the guy, up front, but when I come back, just keep a record and I will pay you back everything that you spend on him. 
So which of these three, says Jesus, as he turns back to the lawyer, looks him dead in the eye? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, I'm sure it was like that. I don't know. It's really unclear. It's the, one, it's the one who had mercy on him. Notice he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan, right? Because the easy answer is the Samaritan. No, it's just the one who had mercy on him. I won't let those words cross my lips. And Jesus told him, all right, go and do likewise. This is not a complicated passage of Scripture. It's, it's, I mean, it's not. You could read through this in a Bible study, and at the end, I, I as the leader could say to you, okay, what does it mean? And you would all be like, um, love your neighbors yourself, right? And who's your neighbor? Well, everybody. It's not a, compl- it's not a complicated passage. Like I said before, it's where we get our good Samaritan laws from. You know, you're not allowed, actually, to pass by people who are in grave need if you do so and you don't pay any attention to them, and you don't help them in their hour of need, you're actually complicit. You'll be be judged by the law for not helping. There's all sorts of different Good Samaritan laws all over the place in the Western world these days. And it comes from this passage. It's not hard to understand. Everybody understands what this story is about. The problem is it's very difficult to apply. Because I don't love like this. Maybe you you do. I, I I doubt it. I don't love my neighbor as myself. You're saying, well, why are you talking about this particular passage when it comes to Hebrews? I thought we were in Romans. Right. We are in Romans. And in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 to verse 10, Paul basically picks up that command, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, this is the fundamental rule for life in the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian and you want to respond to the grace of God shown you in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on a cross for you. God called you to, his, to eternal life. He has gifted you, and you're now going to lay yourself down before him and say, look, I'm going to respond to that grace with everything I've got. What you're going to hear from God is, all right then, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is summed up in that. Love your neighbor As yourself. And so Paul's got a few things to say about love, specifically this love for neighbor. One, he's going to say it's our outstanding debt. It's an image he uses. Second, that love is the big idea of what? Of everything. And third, it it has a a particular look, love does. So I want to, those are kind of the three hooks that we'll hang our thoughts on, okay? So here's the first point he, he makes. Love is our outstanding debt. If you, you can see it in Romans 13, verse 8, it says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now, I want you to go back to Romans 13, verse 7, just the previous verse, okay? And you'll see the line of reasoning that Paul Paul is using. That first line, let no debt remain outstanding, is a summary of the previous verse, which says, Romans 13, 7, give to everyone what you owe them. 
If you owe taxes, pay taxes. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I guess this is in the context of, of the way we should respond to the governments in our day. If you're here last week, you heard that sermon and you, get, you sent an email that I threw away. So <laughs> give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, then pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding. That's his point. Let no debt remain outstanding. Now, I, want to, I just want to pause here for just a second. Because debt is a thing that we, we, we struggle with a little bit. The Bible is not condemning going into debt for Christians. But it does condemn the non-payment of a debt owed. You can go into debt, which might be wise or unwise considering your circumstances at a particular time. But if you go into the debt, you have an obligation that you are called to pay off. Let no debt remain outstanding. And this is an important point just to pause and think about for just a second because I read a proverb this week. It said the only reason a great many Canadian families don't own an elephant is that they've never been offered an elephant for a dollar down and easy weekly payments, <laughs> which is probably true, right? As we do, we go to the store and we're like, oh my goodness, this is a funnel that is going to open up to, and head to the center of the earth. I need one of these in my backyard. And look, it's only $24.99 for the rest of my life, month. Honey, this would be great. This is what, you, seriously, we put things on layaway, we put things like all of that kind of thing. Pay our credit, get our, get, you know, pay things on our credit cards as much as we want. So we're really in big debt oftentimes. It's not wise, you know this, to accumulate a great amount of debt, but it's downright sinful, according to the scriptures, to not pay it back. It's not wise to accumulate it, but it's really, it's sinful to not pay it back. There's actually a story uh, that I came across a few years ago about this guy in the southern part of the United States who came to faith in Jesus, and he had, he owed an enormous amount of debt and had had actually tried to get out from under his creditors, and these, so he started several businesses and had claimed bankruptcy several times. This guy comes to faith in Jesus, and the first thing that happens after he comes to faith in Jesus, like a week later, he comes to his pastor and says, I have this burden on my heart. The pastor said, what, what is it? I have a burden on my heart that I have wronged all of these people. Like, honestly, I feel so horrible about this that part of my commitment to Jesus and laying down my life for him in response to his grace is that I want to go back and pay all these people back. The pastor was like, wait a minute, that's like millions of dollars. And he said, yeah, do you have it? No. No, but I, I committed to work the rest of my life to see if it says, to see my word be honored when I made those agree agreements. Well, you don't have to do it, no, because he'd been in bankruptcy and stuff, I, I, but I, I want to. You know that little story about Zacchaeus? Little guy climbs up in a tree, sees, sees Jesus. Jesus said, hey, listen, I want to go to your house today. He's a tax collector. He's wicked in the community. He's stolen from all sorts of people. Goes to, Jesus, goes to his house for, the, for lunch, Jesus does, and halfway through the meal, Zacchaeus stands up and says, all right, here's the thing. I'm going to pay back everybody what, what I've wronged them four times over. If I've, if I've wronged you, if I've not paid, if I've stolen from you or I owe a debt, I'm, four times over, I'm going to pay it. And the point of that story is that, listen, that when the gospel comes upon a person, it actually affects the way they think about their money. It should think, you should change the way you think about the repayment of, of debt. This is what Paul's getting at. 
We Christians should be people who honor our, honor our words. It's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. But that's not what this passage is about. That was totally free. I just want you to know that completely, I'm not gonna charge you for that at all. It's not what it's about. You notice the line itself. It says, let no debt remain outstanding. It's just sign of a transition from what he just said to now what he's gonna say. Let no debt remain outstanding, except there is one debt that you will always owe. The continuing debt to love one another. So what's he, what's he getting at here? All right, uh, let's imagine that I owe Ezra a billion dollars, which I'm, I might owe him, like, not the actual money, but honor. I, just, I don't honor him very much. So anyway, if I, I owe Ezra a billion dollars. And Ezra decides he's going he's gonna to wipe that away. And I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude for him. I, I say to him, oh, because of how kind you've been to me, I'm, I'm going to lay my life out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to repay portions of it in, in, throughout my life. Is that okay? And he's like, yeah, of course, it's fine. Will I ever exhaust the debt? Will I ever, will I ever pay him back, in other words, for the grace that he's shown? Will I ever get to the point where I reach a billion dollars? <laughs> Not on this salary. Just kidding, that's a total joke. Right, but you know, like, even if I own Google, am I ever gonna get, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get there. I'm gonna eventually, it's not, it's not gonna happen. The image that we have in scripture is basically a, a, you and I owing, owing an enormous debt to God. And the, and the debt is one of great, because of his grace, you and I have been, Sinners who've running the wrong way, God reaches out and he grabs us and he, he brings us back, he redeems us. That's, that's marketplace language. He forgives our debt. And then he calls us then to respond to the grace, to the forgiveness of debt, by worshiping him in a particular way. You say, what way? Well, the love toward God and toward neighbor. So if you want to repay the debt, if you want to offer your life back to God, he's going to say, right, this offering of your life back to me is going to take a certain form, and that form is going to be a love for your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Will you ever love your neighbor as yourself enough to repay the grace debt? No. What do we say then? Well, we say that you have an outstanding debt. What kind of debt? A debt of love. That's what Paul's saying. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Because of Christ's outstanding grace toward us, our love for others will always remain our outstanding debt. So I have a question for you, and it's just a real practical one. Why is this so hard? Like, this is the way it's supposed to work. God has graced us. We respond to the grace of God by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Why is that, that response, so difficult to love our neighbors as ourselves? Why is it so difficult when we read a passage like the Good Samaritan, we say, that's really easy to understand, but super hard to, to apply. So I've got a couple theories on why it's really hard to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the first one. Uh, we really have a fear of getting involved with other, with other people because, you know, they're really messy. Have you noticed that? If you get involved, things... You might get hit. You ever try to break up a fight? 
you get in there and all of a sudden you get hit in the head. And you're like, what the heck? There's this lady named Kitty Genovese. Have you ever heard that name? She's very famous, actually. She, died. she actually died. She's 28 years old. And she, in 1964, was coming home in Queens, New York, at 3 o'clock in the morning, and she walked down the street, and she was stabbed. What was, that's not uncommon in 1964 in Queens, New York. What was weird about it is that there were a number of people who saw her being stabbed, because there was apartment buildings right, right near her. She was very near where she was. Some doors were open on the front of the apartment buildings, and people, when they heard her screaming, shut the doors. And they just assumed that it was a domestic disturbance or something like, like that. One guy yelled out, be quiet, out of his door. And the guy who assaulted, who, who stabbed Kitty Genovese, took off. So she's just lying there on the ground. Talk about a story like the Good Samaritan. But the difference is that nobody came out to help. Some people knew she was there. They just kind of closed their curtains or they just went, they, whatever. She crawled tried to crawl back to her, to her apartment, and a half an hour later, the guy came back and stabbed her 13 more times. And people knew it was happening. They did nothing. By the way, we, this is where we get 911 from. Did you know that? 911 started as a result of this, this event, because there was no way prior to 1964 for people to call 911, at least in the United States, or to call the, the police and, and get an immediate response and not be you know, personally involved in this. So when psychologists looked at this entire event and they were shocked, everybody was shocked at it. Why didn't nobody help? They came to the conclusion after they interviewed a number of the people, they responded by, those, by, by these words. I'm just, I was just afraid of getting involved. And that, yes, that, that's actually right. And you and I think, oh, that's awful, that's terrible. Yeah, but have you ever been in a meeting where there are two parties having kind of a disagreement and you side very much with one of them, but you don't publicly in the meeting vocally side with them. Instead, you keep your head down and then after the meeting, which is always where things are done, right? The meeting after the meeting. After the meeting, you go to the person and you say, you know, I was really on your side about that. I've been the one sometimes, and it's hard to believe, I've often been the one in the angry discussion, in the meeting, and then someone after the meeting will come to me and say, I really appreciated what you had to say. And I was like, well, why didn't you say something? Oh, I don't know, I just didn't want to get involved. Coward! Anyway, <laughs> no. That's why, that's why we don't want to get, that's why I love loving for neighbors, because honestly, we know that it's going to probably disrupt Everything. We're, we're afraid of what might happen if we get involved. If we go over to the guy on the side of the road, they might be hiding in the bushes or behind the rocks and they might come out and beat me up too and I don't want to get beaten up. Another reason I think that we don't get involved is that honestly, it's probably related to the first. It just takes a lot of time to get, in, to get involved. Do you, you notice that good Samaritan? You notice how much time this guy spends at the end? I'm sure he was going somewhere. Probably back to Samaria. Maybe he was going to visit his family somewhere, whatever, but he sees the guy on the side of the road, goes and gets involved, carries him down to the inn, stays with the guy at the inn, and then promises to come back after a few days to the end after spending all of his money. Oh my goodness, that's so much time. Do you know what's easier is just to push, hit the like button on Facebook or Twitter, right? I'll retweet about this. Well, how horrible. 
And that's why we get involved in that kind of level. And we think we've done basically our love for our neighbor because on social media we've approved of the right message or whatever it is. But the truth is, really loving your neighbors yourself actually costs you a lot. It costs you a lot of time and energy. And our society values getting stuff done. And people are rarely done. They're like your kid's room, right? You, 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 you clean it. And you're like, oh, it's perfect. You shut the door. You go away, have a sandwich. You come back, and it's like a tornado hit it. You're like, what happened? And your kid's in the middle going, I don't, I don't know. Because <laughs> people are like that. They, we mess ourselves up all the time, and, and it's difficult to, to fix us. Regardless of the challenges, though, right? Let's just be honest about the challenges and the things that go on in our heart that stop us from wanting to love our neighbors as ourselves. But regardless of those challenges, what you're looking at here is that uh, God wants us to respond to his grace with love for others. And then he ratchets it up with the second point here. He says, not only is it just, this is just a command. This is the command. So love is the big idea. Secondly, verse nine, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall, now, shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be. I don't know, just think of a command, right? Especially one that relates between you and somebody else. So one of the old, one, a command in scripture, how you should act toward others. They are all, he says, summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not a finance guy. I oftentimes go into finance meetings or where the uh, economically-minded people, the accountants and others, are sitting and talking about, you know, accrued interest over the... I didn't even know what they're talking about, and my eyes gloss over. The guy used to be our executive pastor, Steve Weens, my dear friend. He used to come into those meetings with me, and he used to give me a piece of paper. He always had a little piece of paper in his hand. He said, this was for you. And it was always like the executive, so he called it an executive summary. I called it the dumb guy sheet, right? Because I was like, oh, this is perfect. It's got just the summary of what everyone's going to be talking about. And I loved, I loved it. I've been in lots and lots of other meetings before where I got a dumb guy sheet, and I love it. Me and the other dumb guys in the room nod at each other and say, we are. We're equipped now. <laughs> Right, for this conversation. You know, sometimes you want just the summary of the, of the whole information. If you said to me, okay, the Old Testament law, which is really long, it's got a whole book of Leviticus is involved in that, and the Old Testament law, there's lots and lots of laws, can you just give me a dumb guy sheet for it? Give me an executive summary for it. What, G, what, what Paul is saying here is, yeah, all of those laws, particularly the ones that have to do with you and your relation to other people, all of it can be summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, but how can that possibly be? Well, he gives you an argument. Okay, let's take the word, you, you shall not commit adultery. I was uh, in a meeting in another place and another time with a girl who was uh, dating, and by that I mean sexually dating, a married guy. They were separated, the married guy and his wife, but they were trying to work it out. And this girl had wanted to have coffee with me and sit, she, sit down. She, she claimed to be Christian and she said, so I just wanted to know what you thought of this, Pastor. Because they're kind of on their way to divorce, but maybe not. And I love him and we're sexually active. Is this okay? She said in the meeting, 
I, I work at a Christian school and all the other Christian school teachers I work with are saying, this is great and they're really excited for me, but I kind of feel like it might not be. So pastor, can you tell me? Sure. Um, so I said, all right, I want you to imagine this whole thing works out for you. So you guys, divorce happens, you guys are together for the next 10 years. And in 10 years' time, you guys have some troubles, and you end up uh, going and separating from him, or he separates from you, and you're trying to work it out, but you end up finding out that he now is dating sexually another woman who's roughly your age and looks just like you right now. In that moment, how would you feel? And she said, well, not, not good, right? So go and do likewise. I don't quite understand, she said. Oh. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is you're committing adultery, but your committing of adultery is actually just a form of your lack of love for your neighbor. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you want to do to your neighbor what you would want to be done to you if you were in the same situation. So I'm putting you now in the same situation. What would you want to have happen? Well, I wouldn't want them to commit adultery. Yes! Right. You see how that works? The foundational command is love your neighbor as yourself, and it shows up in all sorts of different ways. I'll give you another one. You shall not steal, he says. Uh, you ever stolen your kid's french fries? I, I, admittedly, mea culpa, I stole, steal my kid's friends. I call it tax and stuff like that. But <laughs> they, they will... I have a little girl, and so some of my, bo my boys, one or two of my boys, will have a pile of french fries in front of them, and my daughter is distractible. So they'll say, oh, Sophie, look over there. I think that's your friend. And she'll turn her head, and they'll grab six french fries off her plate and put them on theirs <laughs> and start giggling. And then they'll do it again. And when they do it again, I reach over and grab 12 french fries off their plate <laughs> and pull it back. And then they look at you and go, what are you doing? And I said, oh, does it bother you when somebody steals your french fries when you're not looking? Is that a problem for you? <laughs> yeah, why are you doing that? Uh, right? <laughs> so thou shalt not steal is a function or a form of lack of love for your neighbor, right? So this is what Paul's saying. Listen, the whole thing, the whole executive summary is, boils down to this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Can I just clarify something really quickly here? My fear is that some people are gonna say, oh yeah, I love your neighbors yourself. I've heard that lots of times before. And you're gonna get in your car after the service and you're, one of you who th thinks you're really clever is gonna say to their friend, you know, you can't really love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. And I'm, on the one, listen, I'm a, I, struggle with, I struggle with emotional health. So I totally get what you're saying in this. I do, right? Because sometimes we look in the mirror and we, we're despised by ourselves. And that is an emotional challenge and a mental challenge that we have. That's not what Paul's saying here. Hey, go love yourself and then you'll be able to love your neighbor. He's saying, no, you already love yourself because you fed yourself this morning, you cleaned yourself this morning. If you're hungry right now, you're thinking about what you're gonna eat later. If you're bored, you're on your phone right now. I see you, right? No, I, <laughs> right? Like you, you, you pleasure yourself all the time. We take care of ourselves all the time. He's saying, yeah, see, you always look after your needs. So love your neighbor, in the same way that you love yourself, have concern for your neighbor in the same way you already have concern for yourself. But what does that look like? And in practical terms. So here's the last one. 
what love, look, what love looks like. Uh, second part of verse nine, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of, of the law. So here's the question that Paul wants you to ask yourself. Is what I'm doing to that other person, regardless of who they are or where they're from, regardless if they are a Samaritan, regardless of they, the wrong race, the wrong background, the wrong sexual orientation for you, regardless of whatever it is that you struggle with, doesn't matter who they are, is what I'm doing to that other person what I would want done to me if I were in the same situation? How do I seek their good and not their harm? So there's lots of examples of that. Up on our mission campus, we have this, uh, there's a community group that heard that there's a single mother in the church and uh, she has some adult children and she needed to move from her house. And the community group didn't know her at all, contacted her on the phone and said, hey, we'd like to move you. So tell us where we need to be, what, what you need. And she was like, well, I guess I need some boxes and I need to be able to pack it up and I don't have a lot of time for the packing up and I need to be able to do all of those things. Ugh. So they said, listen, why don't we just, we'll take care of it all for you. Because like, seriously, we, we're all a bunch of married people and we can't imagine how difficult it would be to have to do the parenting thing on your own. So we're gonna help you out. So they did. They organized the whole thing, and over a period of two weeks, they went to her house, boxed up everything that she owned, rented, their, rented a, a truck on their own, put it in there, moved her into the new place, unloaded it, bought the pizza on their own, fed her. This lady afterwards was so overwhelmed with joy. What did they do there? All they did is take themselves and put, her, put themselves in her position and say, man, if I were in that situation, that would be really hard. There's a ministry we have in our town called Inasmuch Ministries. Inasmuch is run by Peter and Don Lynn Prediger. It is a ministry to new uh, refugees. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a refugee? You have to leave your country for political or religious reasons, sometimes gender reasons. You have to leave your country. You have to leave everything you own. In some cases, you're a doctor there, lawyer there. You've made a good life for yourself, but you have to leave because the government is oppressing you in some way or your life is at risk because you've come to faith in Jesus in some cases and you show up on the shores of Canada and they say, yeah, you can come in and they just sort of send you into the abyss. Can you imagine what that would be like? You, you can't actually work as a lawyer or a doctor because you don't have the credentialing here. So now they say, well, you, maybe you can drive a taxi or an Uber in a few months. Can you imagine what that'd be like? You don't, have, you don't have anything. You got kids in tow. They don't have anything. They don't have schools. They don't know the, the language that the government speaks when they speak to you. They have no idea about that language. And their solution, most people's solution, when they find out you don't speak English, is to speak it louder. How, do you understand? You can't even order food. Can you imagine what that would be like? Nobody looks like you. Can you imagine what that would be like? So their ministry is basically putting themselves into the shoes of another and saying, you know what? That must be really hard. What they would need is a friend who knows the system and can hold them by the hand and lead them through this. They need someone who can love their neighbor as themselves. Can you imagine what it would be like to deal with same-sex attraction? 
to, to, for whatever reason in your life, while everybody else wants to love people of the other gender, you feel an inclination to love your own gender. And you're a Christian and you know, you know it's, you want to follow God in this and you know it's wrong and you're in the fight about it and you want to repent of that and you're struggling with it, but you can't say anything to anyone because you know like the worst place to talk about this for most people is a church, especially a conservative church like ours. So I can't be open about the challenge I have, even though I'm in the fight, I can't confess this particular challenge and sin and proclivity to people and so now I'm left all alone. Imagine what that would be like to fight that particular sin in this particular time in our culture's divided moments. You know, you know what they need? Someone to love them as, as themselves. Can you imagine if you were in their shoes what you would want? What would it look like for you to do them good? We have, mar- we have uh, I, I occasionally argue with my wife. From time to, it's usually her fault, but like... You, we occasionally have a disagreement with my wife and I say words that I shouldn't say and I walk, I remember going away several times, you get in the car and you drive away, she's terrible and blah, blah, blah. And they're always, the Spirit of God is always reminding me, Jeff, listen, if you were in her position and you had gone all day and worked at the school, at the MEI, MEI, can you imagine working at MEI for an entire day and then dealing at the end of all of that with other kids are coming to your house and you're expected to make the, the meal and your husband's sitting on the stinking couch watching a show or whatever, what's for dinner, you know? And she, you show up and then you get in a disagreement because you say something, why didn't you pick the kids up on time today or something like that? And you accuse her of that. Can you imagine if you were in her shoes, how you would feel with someone like you saying that to her in the tone you just used? My response usually to the Spirit of God is, no, I cannot, Right? <laughs> Most of the arguments you and I have in our marriages, in our good, our strong relationships, are just a plain failure to love our neighbors ourselves. We just don't put ourselves in their situation. We don't know what it's like to walk in their shoes and to deal with the challenges that they deal with. You'd have a lot more peace if you love your neighbor as yourself. I've sat across the table from people who are in a financial disagreement over businesses, and I found myself in the meeting, in the mediation meeting, with both parties saying, can you imagine what it would be like for it to be in their shoes? Yes, they, 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 their business has failed. Things have not gone the way that they had planned. They owe you money. I get it, totally. But you, can you imagine what it would be like to have your, your house at risk? All your assets at risk? All the things you've worked for to basically be laid out now and have you say, you, you owe me. Can you imagine what that would be like? If you were in those situations, what would you want from somebody? Some understanding, I would think. And then the person on the other side is like, yeah, that's, that's right. Then I turn to them and say, can you imagine what it would be like to actually sell a business to somebody who didn't pay? And how frustrating that would be? Can you imagine how hard that would be for that family? And those like, shouldn't you be putting yourself in this situation? Most of the mediation stuff that we do as a church is just trying to get people to love their neighbor as themselves. Because the whole law is summed up in that. So here's my point. There are many in our lives lying in need on the roads we travel. In our families, in our businesses, 
in our social lives. There are many who are lying in need on the side of the roads we travel. What would you want if, they were in your, if you were in their shoes? How would you do them good? Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Hmm. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and for this passage, and I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to uh, consider what it means, how it looks. I'm gonna trust your spirit the next little bit to convict us of sin, to help us to see where we've been wrong and to confess it, Father, and be filled by your spirit to do better in the, in the future. We're thankful for our Lord Jesus. You love, you love us, Father, even when we don't do this well. So help us, Father, in response to your grace to do it well, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.